Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists who are working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Interviews are conducted with individuals who are doing clinical work as well as leading attachment theory researchers. Your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, will introduce you to Andrea Chatwin, who will discuss sleep-related issues with children. Andrea Chatwin is the founder and clinical director of A Child's Song. She holds a master's degree in counseling psychology and has extensive experience as an early childhood mental health clinician. She specializes in effective responding to attachment and trauma, particularly focusing on children who have had caregiver losses and placement disruptions. Andrea founded A Child's Song as a result of her passion for supporting adoptive and foster families and developing strong parent-child connections. She is committed to providing adoptive parents the tools they need to therapeutic parents. And now your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter. Well, hello everybody. I am here again on the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. And today my guest is Andrea Chatwin. Um, and I'm really excited to be able to speak with her. Um, she has an agency in Canada. The agency is called A Child's Song. And Andrea, could you just tell our listeners a little bit about your background and your work? Great, thank you. I'm so glad to be here too. Um, a Child Song was uh, founded about six years ago, and it, it uh, came out of my passion for working with adoptive families. I have a background in uh, early childhood mental health, and particularly working with children uh, who've experienced trauma and caregiver losses. And in the middle of that work, I also became an adoptive parent. So the topic became really personal to me as well. Um, and in my travels to, uh, to pick up my daughter and to uh, do a little bit of uh, volunteer work in some orphanage overseas, I became really focused on um, understanding the, the, the idea of developmental trauma and what does that bring for a child in terms of their future development and, and uh, the future outcomes. And so watching my daughter grow, it was a great opportunity for me as well to integrate um, my theoretical knowledge into some practical learning. And, and doing that for a number of years led me to find a lot of other adoptive parents that were also really struggling with some of these issues. They didn't know how to articulate the needs their, child's were, their children were experiencing and, and how to find the right help. And essentially, from one uh, client in a living room, uh, we've built an agency that, uh, that provides services uh, across BC and also in some other parts of Canada as well. Wow, that's just fantastic. So you really took on a lot, you know, not only deciding to adopt internationally, but you were going to figure out, you know, all the services that would be helpful and open an agency as well. That's amazing. Yeah. Thank you. That was the idea, really just to look at, um, it's really hard for adoptive families to explain their story and the symptoms they're seeing and have somebody look at it through an adoption lens. And, and we figured once they've already done that once, it would be great if they could get a lot of services at the same place that, uh, where they wouldn't have to keep redoing that and keep searching out different services that uh, are, are provided through an adoption lens. Right, right. And um, another thing that you had shared with me um, before the podcast was that um, sometimes you have found it helpful 
to, rather than just speak about all of the theory and developmental trauma and attachment and all of that, maybe to hone in on a specific difficulty that families are experiencing. That, that really stuck with me from our conversation and leads us to what we're going to talk about today is um, dealing with sleep issues and sleep problems in children. And so feel free to just kind of launch into some of your thoughts on that. Well, you know, if you're a parent and you're coming in for your first session, um, you really hope you're going to walk out the door with something that's going to make your life and your child's life a little bit easier. And sometimes it takes a while for us to do a good assessment. And in the meantime, I do try to ask parents, what are some of the, the big things that are making life hard? And how can I offer you a few things to walk out the door with that you can implement straight away? And how Hands down, almost every single assessment involves children who struggle with sleep. Mm -hmm. And so we've tried to come up with um, not only just the theory, but some practical interventions that, that parents can use that, that really tackle the sleep problem from a trauma-informed uh, perspective. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. that's, that's really what uh, the specific work around sleep um, and eating as well, but we're focusing on sleep today, uh, allows us to, uh, to help parents see that the the, the regular sleep interventions that you might read about on the internet or the things that your pediatrician might recommend, they're backfiring and that's frustrating for parents. And so we want to offer them something that really fits uh, for a child who's experienced trauma and loss. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think what, what you're saying just in terms of this global idea of specific strategies is really good for a all of us to be reminded of. I think sometimes we get so caught up in, I want them to understand attachment, I want them to understand trauma, and I really want the parents to, to appreciate some of these concepts that, you know, parents are pulling their hair out desperate, thinking, <laughs> something to do, you know, enough of the theory already, you know? So, absolutely, this is, absolutely. This is a very good reminder. So, so uh, what would you tell us about sleep? What are some of the things that are unique to, to children who've experienced loss, trauma, orphanage care, et cetera, that you think are important for folks to know? Uh, as a stressor and be very cautious around any interventions that also increase stress at bedtime. Those mm -hmm. things are clearly not the right approach for children. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing that I think people forget or, or maybe haven't really realized is that um, sleep is the time where children are often really affected by their implicit memories. So when kids are busy, running around, having a good time, playing, being at school, they're very distracted. And those are not the times when their implicit memories are going to surface. But bedtime and sleep time, that's when that happens. So when parents say, oh, my child's fine all day, they just start having this, this problem at bedtime. I think it's because they don't want to go to bed. And I'll say to them, no, 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 it's, it's really not that well planned out. <laughs> it's that their body slows down. And they don't have all these options for distracting themselves. And that's when they're most impacted by their implicit memories. Mm -hmm. And so we see children who wake up at a particular time each night. So, for example, every night at 4.30 a.m., they wake up screaming. Mm. 
that that's an implicit memory that's impacting their sleep in some way. We've got children that are um, sleeping and, and while they're sleeping, they're rubbing their feet together so vigorously that they're causing rashes and things on their sleep, on their feet during sleep time. There's, I could tell you a hundred stories of the, the different kind of behaviors that children have just leading up to, and then during their sleep that really, if you have an eye for trauma, you understand those are trauma memories surfacing at night and in the morning or during their sleep. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. our parenting in the night has to be therapeutic parenting. And mm -hmm. of course, parents are not always at their best in the middle of the night uh, or not at their best after a long day. So I talk a lot with parents about how do you save enough of yourself so that your parenting at night is very therapeutic because that's when your children need the, that response more than ever. Mm -hmm. That's good. You know, I think too, Shadak, where I work, we have a, a residential treatment center. And of course, nighttime is, is difficult there. And I think um, in addition to all the things that you're talking about with the implicit memory, um, sometimes, often sexual abuse was related to nighttime or uh, the bedroom or something like this. Um, and also, I think some of our kids... Um, just have a general feeling of I'll be forgotten. Like they don't really have permanency and constancy that the caregiver will be back even though I'm alone in this room. Um, so I, I've kind of seen that with some of the kids you work with too. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. You know, on top of the implicit memories, we've got kids that are going to bed and that's the time that they're disclosing things that have happened to them in the past or that's the time when they're creating the most fuss about being alone in their bedroom, or you know, their behavior regresses so significantly before bedtime because it's such a trigger, uh, the whole bedtime routine, or being in a bed or being in a bedroom is a reminder of, of things that have been all around that, that sort of follow the routine of bedtime. Yes, yes. And so um, what are some of the things that you might first start talking with a parent about how to intervene on some of this. Right, okay, so we have kind of a set of intervention principles that we would typically uh, work with families around. And of course, the first one is to do a really good assessment of what's happening in the sleep. And, and uh, it requires a very sort of specific questions that people wouldn't generally think to ask children about their sleep experiences. Uh, and parents are often shocked by their children's answers if we involve the child in the interview around that, um, that they had no idea that the child had more than 10 thoughts after they left the room around things that were scary, you know? Mm. Um, they had no idea that the child woke up four or five times in the night um, mm. because they didn't call out or they didn't ask for any help. Um, they had no idea that the child uh, thought of the exact same memory every night before where they went. So these are really important things to know about a child's sleep experience. Um, the other piece is that we look for opportunities for parents to be very much the co-regulator at night rather than the parent looking for strategies for the child to self-regulate. That can sometimes be a tough sell with older kids. But I talk to parents a lot about how, you know, the sleep issues provide you one more opportunity to secure attachment with this child. And so if you look for opportunities to co-regulate with them in the evening, meaning that when you're with them, the sleep is easier, 
comes faster, is more peaceful, there's an opportunity then to be able to reflect on that in the morning that, that mommy's presence or daddy's presence allows you to feel safe and comforted, which means mm-hmm. sleep is better. Yeah. So we have to really think about, you know, if your child's behaving functionally like a 10 or a 12 year old during the day and they regress to the behavior of a three year old at night, you have to meet them at their three year old level just for the night mm-hmm. um, and, and then wait for that to progress. If you expect their 12 year old development to be active in those moments and you push and push and push for that, it, it's never going to result in the kind of um, outcomes that you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. So um, the really other piece I think is, um, is we try to offer parents, um, a, a template or a way in which they can give their child an explanation for why it's happening to me. Why am I a six year old or an eight year old or a 10 year old that can't go to sleep, can't fall asleep, or that needs their parent to be with them to fall asleep. Sometimes for children, the stress of bedtime is that they don't understand it and it's uncomfortable and it doesn't get better and their parents Mm -hmm. are frustrated with them and Mm -hmm. they don't know how to make it better. Mm -hmm. And so having an explanation is really important and we look for pieces of that explanation in the assessment that we do initially. Mm-hmm. Um, we've also created the the baby brain book. It's a little children's book, and the idea is that it's a resource for parents to use um, to read their children before they go to bed. And the baby brain book offers a very general but a reasonable explanation that would fit for any child who's had early trauma um, to understand why their brain has trouble at night. Mm-hmm. Yes. What a what a great idea and a great resource. I. I saw uh, one of your blogs talked about that book and will want to, you know, if, uh, if not now, later, tell listeners how they could even get that book. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's just, it's available on the website. So once you've given your child uh, an explanation, then we also need to look at things. People are, are um, often surprised when I suggest that sleep is going to be directly related to how much daytime stress and expectations are on the child. So every child has a certain coping capacity, and and if they reach the end of it, then coping is absolutely done. That means Mm -hmm. that the behavior is going to regress significantly um, with no point of, you cannot return from that until you've had some rest. Mm -hmm. And so if the child has already finished up, all used up all the resources they have for coping to meet expectations and to manage stress by 7 p.m., you have not left them anything for which they can manage one of the most difficult times of their day. Mm. And so being really mindful of that is important. Sometimes in order to change sleep, we need to look at pulling back for a period of time on a child's, um, the expectations on a child to allow them to have some coping resources left over. Mm -hmm. Gosh, as you say that, um, it's the same for grownups too, right? I mean, if you, you know, thinking about one, if you're having trouble sleeping, you know, what's going on during the day. And two, as you mentioned earlier, you know, if this is your major chunk of time, you're with your children, you know, how can you come to that without being so completely drained from, from the day? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. So that's right. We talked about that earlier. The parents also need to sort of imagine themselves uh, reserving a certain amount 
of their capacity to be responsive in a therapeutic way to their child for that evening uh, sleep time. Yeah, I think it's a, I really like that you're bringing this up because I think that we just think it doesn't matter if you exhaust yourself during the day because then you'll just be all the more likely to flop into bed and go to sleep. Like, I think that's like the general idea about this, right? right. And, right. and not considering, you know, that energy is required to get to a sleep state. I think that's a real kind of game changer kind of concept. Yeah. Yes. And you know, for, for a lot of children, the physical depletion of their energy is not problematic. It's the psychological or emotional depletion of energy. And so those two things are a little bit separate. Some children really do better at bedtime if you take them outside for 30 minutes and have them ride their bike or run around, <laughs> you know, or you have a trampoline for them to jump on and then sleep is a little bit easier for them. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but it's that reservation of their coping um, resources that is so important. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's really good. Thinking about that division. And like you said, thinking about um, the assessment, you know, and this individual child and, and what this could be about for them. Um, yes. And I would also assume that during the assessment, you would also be ruling out, is there any medical thing going on or, or something like this that we need to be aware of that, like you said, maybe distracted from during the day, but, you know, more aware of Absolutely. It. You know, it, uh, normally by the time people come to us, they've exhausted all of the regular sort of medical resources. Um, and most of those things have been ruled out. But I do often ask children, just where in your body feels uncomfortable when it's time to sleep? And that also produces answers that people seem quite surprised by um, mm -hmm. because that's not typically a question you would ask a child you know right. so tell me when you lay down to go to sleep what part of your body feels yucky or what part doesn't feel good or what part do you focus on and those things help us you know determine sometimes if there's um you know medical or physical stuff that hasn't been noted or acknowledged you know and, and it's often things that are typical for children but the way in which this child has interpreted it in their mm -hmm. mind is through the lens of trauma. Mm -hmm. And so their interpretation is what creates the problem. You know, if, if a child has growing pains, many children have growing pains that impact them in, in the nighttime. That's a very typical experience for children. Parents are responsive to that. They understand that's uncomfortable. And we have some strategies we can use to help children become more comfortable from growing pains. But if the child interprets it as though somebody's hurting them at nighttime, you know, everything their parent does feels uh, like it hurts. So you're hurting me when you put my pajamas on. You're hurting me when you put, when you brush my teeth, you're hurting me. And, and, and so their interpretation is completely different. And, and so the problem gets misdiagnosed or misunderstood. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, then the, a simple thing isn't remedied because of the way the child's brain interprets that discomfort. You know, I don't want to go too far off on a tangent, but something that just um, popped into my mind when you were just speaking then with the teeth brushing and putting pajamas on. It also made me think about children with sensory issues. Like a lot could be going on at bedtime that triggers all of that. With we have a section. Absolutely. There's a section in the presentation that we give on sleep that specifically talks about sensory issues because it's Wonderful. so connected, so connected. Mm -hmm. um, a, child's, a, a child who's experienced trauma and, and particularly our children who come here internationally who've experienced orphanage life, their sensory 
integration is not as it should be and and they often don't know how to report it and so we find that a child sometimes some of the most basic interventions around sensory integration completely changes a child's nighttime experience mm -hmm. um, they can go from a child who is like completely dysregulated and out of hand to a child who's actually slowed down and able to process some of their grief um, and th mm -hmm. that can happen as a result of the right kind of sensory tools being used. Right. Oh, that's that's wonderful. Um, you're really you're really covering all the bases with what you're talking about in this workshop. That's so helpful. Um, yeah. One of the other things I would just offer is this idea that um, you know when when we put children to sleep, sometimes the last things they hear are things that are still in their uh, consciousness when they're falling asleep. Mm -hmm. And so children who have had a lot of experiences of feeling unsafe at night, I've often had their parents um, say to them every night before they fall asleep, you're safe here. Um, and in your bed, bed wasn't always safe, but here your bed is safe. Mm -hmm. And when you wake up, you're going to be safe and all night you're going to be safe. And if you ever don't feel safe, then I'll be right here to make you feel safe. Mm -hmm. and, and then you'll be safe again. Yeah. And they, they probably say the word safe 15 times uh, before that child's falling asleep. And, and it just creates this, um, it, it, it's like addressing that implicit memory very, very, very specifically. And if, if they have to address it uh, according to what the child's specific fear is, then they'll do that. We'll, we'll write a script for that as well. Um, mm -hmm. And I've, I've seen a lot of positive outcomes from that as well. And yeah. it, it's also a, a psychological reminder for the parent about why they're still doing this. Why are they still having to put all this effort and energy into every single time? It's because of those memories. Right, right. So, you know, I know you said earlier that um, a lot of the typical things you might hear about about helping with sleep but have not been effective um, with children with this kind of history. But um, I did want to ask before we start to wrap up about routines. Often routines are brought up, you know, in all the, for any children, you know, have a good bedtime routine. Mm -hmm. What is your mm -hmm. thought about that specifically? Yeah, I, I think routines are lovely and they are really helpful for children. The reason I don't bring them up initially is because most people come in saying to me, we've already tried the routine thing. Mm -hmm. Every book says you should have a, a consistent, predictable routine for children to fall asleep. And all parents, if I mentioned routine in the first uh, intervention, they'd probably walk out the door because they've right. read that, they've heard that, they've seen that, they've done that, and it's just not enough. So routine should be a starting place for every parent, every child, every family. It's just not going to make or break the success um, mm -hmm. of, of the so, you know, if you threw out routine altogether and the parent simply stayed present with the child during all of their distress during sleep, that would have more impact on these children than routine would alone. So mm. if you had to pick one, <laughs> but, but in, a, in a perfect world, we're going to have all of it. We're going to have a lovely routine that helps children's brains recognize when, when it's time for sleep and have their bodies slow down. And they're also going to have the experience of, of being co-regulated by right. an undergoing therapeutic parent uh, mm -hmm. just before they fall asleep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think, too, you know, the other thing you're saying is there are specific parts of this routine, if you, if this does become a routine that you would not have known 
without the kinds of questions you're suggesting a parent asks and, and these sorts of things. So, wow, this has been really, really good. Um, I, I feel like it, it, it's been really, really helpful and, and given me and our listeners a lot to think about around this issue. It's funny that more isn't out there written about this um, specific to this population. Yes, yes. And you know, we, we, that was what I found too when I started this research project to put together this presentation and to write our book. Uh, I read, I, I mean, I have a copy of almost every adoption book you could possibly uh, get your hands on. And a lot of adoption books do recognize that sleep is a significant issue and that children struggle with sleep um, and they may need support around sleep. But there isn't a lot of suggestions about what to do. In, in regards to that. So right. that's what we're really looking to do is say, you need something that you can do and what you need to do needs to work. So we had to go about the practice of making sure our, our methods were effective before we started sharing them with everyone. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so we've had some, some really good success. Yes. Again, you know, that reminder of we have to have practical application with the theory. Okay, children who've experienced trauma are going to have trouble sleeping at night. Well, now what? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. And I think just your, your um, thoughts, I mean, thoughts about, you know, sleep is so crucial for everybody. And mm -hmm. a lot of suggestions we may make as a therapist aren't going to work for the parent or the child if everyone's sleep deprived. You know? Absolutely. This seems like something that really needs to be looked at it early on in the treatment process, or you could be setting yourself up, everyone up for failure. That's such a good point. Such a good point. If I hear a parent lay out five top concerns, I'll always say, let's start with sleep, because some of those other ones might get resolved along the way if your child isn't so sleep deprived and you're not so sleep deprived as well. Asking a parent to spend 24 hours a day feeling empathic when they've had two hours of sleep is a tall order. Yes. Um, and if, if their child's not sleeping, they're not sleeping. And so that's, that's what we need to start with. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. This is just chock full of lots of really good thoughts and information. And I'd like if you could, you know, share your website, the book related to sleep, how people could reach you if maybe they wanted to invite you to speak with an adopt adoptive family group or something like that. Like, how can people access you? <laughs> Wonderful. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so we'd love to uh, have you visit us at, uh, at childsong.ca. Um, and the book is available on the front page of the website. And absolutely, there's contact information available there as well. And we're happy to, to reach out. We are actually going to be quite in quite a few places across 2018 presenting this uh, material, um, both in Canada and in the U.S. and we're excited to to share this new work with uh, with not not just adoptive families but also adoption professionals um, who are coaching and supporting families. That's great. I mean, word is getting out. I heard about this information from Dr. Catherine Tucker, who is a colleague of mine, um, and she heard you guys speak um, at a conference and, and suggested I reach out to you. So that the word is getting out that you guys have some good information about this topic. So that's good. Wonderful. Thank you so much for inviting me. This has been such a pleasure. Good. Thank you so much. And goodbye for now. <laughs> Bye. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, TraumaAttachmentCenter.com, or subscribe to our iTunes channel for future podcasts. 
If you enjoyed our broadcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, log on to TraumaAttachmentCenter.com. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, developmental trauma, and attachment theory.